Hey everybody, this is Tim. One half. The lesser half, I guess. What would you... Because you always go like, hey, it's my better half. And my better half is missing. That's uh, Willie. Um, but I guess I, that would make me the lesser half. I don't know. What is what, what do you refer to that as? Anyway, I am Tim. One half of Horror Movie Yearbook. This is the honor roll. For those not familiar with the honor roll, what I do here is every week or so i guess it's been a couple weeks now basically i look at five brand new horror movies and then choose which ones i really like and which ones i want to place on my honor roll and then from that honor roll i will take my top 10 of the year at the end of the year hopefully um and then that will my top 10 will come from this list of movies don't have a ton ton of time here this is my first time recording in the morning i've got a coffee i've got a salted pretzel coffee it's actually not bad i was kind of surprised by it i got like a fall sampler pack of coffees anyway we don't have time to talk about coffee i need to talk about Candyman. Candyman. this is out now as a theatrical rental it's one of those 20 dollar ones or you can go see it in theater if you would if you are so inclined this movie has been my most anticipated movie period not just horror movie for like two years running now it is like the no time to die of the horror genre for me this is directed by Nia DaCosta, written by DaCosta, with credits for Wynn Rosenfeld and Jordan Peele as well. This stars Yaya Abdul-Mateen, Tiana Paris, Nathan Stewart, Jarrett, and it's got some bees in it as well. So this is a sequel to the horror film Candyman. It returns to the now gentrified Chicago neighborhood where the legend began. I am just going to start this review and flat out say it, and I am also going to try and avoid spoilers. And just, there may be some slight spoilers for all of these movies, but I'm going to do my best to avoid specifics. I'm also going to try to avoid specifics when it comes to the central metaphor of this movie and the themes in this movie, because honestly, there are people who can speak to those better than I ever could. So go search those out. I am going to be more focused on the plot side of things, I think. I'm also going to start off by saying this movie is uh, my biggest disappointment so far this year. So there is that. That doesn't mean I think it's bad, though. I was just very let down by it. And I've spent the last couple days trying to figure out why. So I may come off as a bit more negative in this review than maybe I actually am. But so be it. I touched on it a little in the intro. And while I said I wouldn't dive into the themes of this movie and what it's about too deep, It needs to be mentioned because this movie is about as subtle as a sledgehammer with those things. And honestly, that's not a big deal for me. I'm I think subtlety is a way overrated. There's that bit from Garth Marenghi's Dark Place that gets shared on the old socials that has the caption. I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. And it's a great line. And I laugh every time. But I almost agree with old Garth there. Say what you want to say. That's why you're making whatever piece of art you're making. Uh, But that Garth Marenghi quote ran through my head constantly during this movie. When it comes to stating your theme, I think there is a line and this movie crosses it and it does it really early in the movie. There are like two separate scenes in this movie where the characters explicitly discuss and argue about the metaphor of Candyman. And it's, it's, I laughed. It's kind of absurd, really. This movie says the quiet part loud to the point of being exhausting. And it says the quiet part loud and then louder and then constantly and here's the thing i agree with the movie and what it's trying to say that's the thing it's like when i watch it's like when i watch one of those like 15 minute john oliver bits and online i'm just like yeah john get him like yeah that is bad 
Um, and I agree, but what is it doing other than kind of preaching to the choir? What is this? Is it, is he changing any minds there? At least, at least John Oliver tries to be funny, um, and work in some jokes. The new Candyman movie is a movie that's so focused on its themes that for me, it forgot to tell the story, sadly. And that, in my opinion, the story is where you are more likely to draw people in and then change minds with what you are trying to say. So there is that. I think it was like a half hour in where I just went, hey, did I run a Candyman movie or did I walk into a college lecture hall talking about the original Candyman movie? Anyway, we'll dive into it a little bit. Um, all that being said, I never want to be too negative toward a movie, especially a big budget studio release that is at least trying to be about something. And this movie definitely is. It's just incredibly didactic with what it's about. And I think it's preoccupation with its themes. It, it sacrifices its story. And that leads me to my main problem with the movie outside of all those things, which is this movie ends up being it feeling very slight and almost more like a Candyman television pilot for me more than a full Candyman movie. And this is where I might get a bit spoilery, so I'll do my best. But most of this movie feels like the first act and a half of a Candyman movie, and then it rushes through its third act. It's almost like if we got to the point in a Spider-Man movie where Spider-Man gets his costume, and then he beats the Green Goblin in 15 minutes and the movie is over. Uh, the briskness of it all hurts also when it comes to character depth. Character depth, excuse me. There are good performances across the board here, but I do think the character work gets replaced with thematic discussion. Yaya Abdul-Mateen and Tiana Paris both do really good work here, but Paris in particular feels really shortchanged, especially when the movie decides to dive a little bit deeper into her character's past. There's a character of her brother that also comes off as a bit stereotypical, but he's also very funny and provides a couple of the movie's only bits of like real, real humor. So I forgive him a little. He is, he is quite funny. I laughed out loud. Um, now, on the flip side of all of this, it does lead me to a positive with the new Candyman. The characters in this movie are all artists. And or at least they're connected to the art world in some way. And in this movie, while it certainly has its characters that it sympathizes with, it also has like kind of almost Coen Brothers-esque wickedness when it comes to some of its other characters. It kind of seems to almost hate some of them, which is great because I didn't like a lot of them either. So there you go. Now, as I said, this movie deals with a lot of different ideas and without outlining them all. And there are other places that will you can find that will do that for you and do it much better than me. I do want to zero in on one of them. Um, and it's one that worked the best for me. There is a great scene in the movie where two people, two white people are looking at a piece of art that is focused on the suffering and death of black people. And they, they're looking at it and they get turned on by it and they start like having sex in front of it. And it's not like two overly racist people. It's two presumably liberal white artists who are just overcome with horniness while looking at this work of black suffering. It's my favorite moment in the movie because it is just, it's wickedly funny and while it's also not subtle, it's just so audacious and confrontational with what it's saying that it worked for me. The scene also works as a commentary on the first movie, which real quick, I do want to mention that I've seen some things online lately that I think are some misinterpretations of the Helen character in part one in the original Candyman movie. And it's almost an example of how art can change and meaning over time and how people interpret art made a while back in today's day and age. But 
I think this is also in the text of that first movie. Helen is opportunistic in the first Candyman movie, and she is preying on black suffering for her thesis, but her journey is one that kind of leads her to a heroic point, and she she does heroic actions during the movie, but the movie doesn't absolve her of her actions during, during its runtime. It just, I wanted to touch on that real quick because I've seen her referred to as kind of a white savior. And I do not think that is accurate at all. I mean, like she summons the candy man in that movie. Come on, watch the movie. So anyway, back to the horny white people, sex scene in the art gallery, because it works as a commentary on the first movie, but it also works as a bit of a critique on the state of horror post Jordan Peele's Get Out, which I really quick want to point anyone who is interested in what I'm talking about to an article from The Atlantic back in April called Who Wants to Watch Black Pain by Hannah Georges. It takes a look at the at the focus on black pain and trauma and works like them, Antebellum, and also Lovecraft Country, and kind of the exasperation for black viewers that can come along with watching those works because you do... I think you do have to ask yourself who's in charge of greenlighting these movies and series that focus on these things and, and why exactly. So for me, that, 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 that scene of horny whites also works as kind of a meta commentary on stuff like that. And something like love, love, excuse me, Lovecraft country, which uh, ironically comes from Jordan Peele and his production company, monkey paw productions. Uh, This leads me to my last talking point real quick here because I know I'm running along on this, uh, which is Jordan Peele and Monkey Paw Productions. Now, I am aware, before I get started here, this is Nia DaCosta's Candyman. Um, and I think it's it's her movie. It's an incredibly well-shot movie. I think it's well-directed. I think there are some incredible sequences, like the aforementioned one that I was just talking about. I do think there are some choices that kind of hurt some of the tension in some of the scenes. And I do wonder how many of those are on the script level, as I know there were some changes made to the film after early test screenings and Peel's original script focused more on the Helen character. And I, I feel like you can feel some of that missing here. I also think, I think the way that it skips quickly through the middle part of the movie where horror movies tend to get their most tense is a factor in that kind of lack of tension for me as well. But Candyman kind of continues the streak, for me at least, since Get Out of of me kind of cooling on Jordan Peele a little bit and what he's been involved with, whether it's as a director, writer, producer, especially on the genre side of things. I liked Us quite a bit. I had similar issues with it, though, as I do with the new Candyman. And I kind of thought it was another draft away from being really good, another polish. I really disliked his Twilight Zone reboot. I didn't even think it was hit or miss like a lot of anthology series can be. I just thought it was, I thought it was really bad. Um, I jumped out of Lovecraft really early. I kind of thought, I thought that was a bit overwrought. Um, the first episode of Hunters was one where I looked at my phone for 90% of it. And now this was a letdown. So I'm not done. Like this isn't me being hot takey. I'm not done with Jordan Peele or anything. I just bring this up because all of these movies and series have similar issues, similar problems with for me, which is that my issues with them aren't with what they are saying, but more with how they are saying it. And I just wish there was a little bit more care taken with the actual story being told. Um, anyway, sorry, that was a bit rambling. So what I do here at the end of each review is ask, is this going to be on my honor roll? And unfortunately, I'm going to say no, this one is not. I'm not going to put this on my honor roll. I can't see this making my top 10 at the end of the year. I will say this, though. There's plenty of value here. 
plenty of stuff to chew on. I also think this is the type of movie that on a rewatch with kind of recalculated expectations, maybe a bit more time to process the way too quick third act that honestly, I didn't grasp everything in that third act. Um, it might grow on me a little bit more, but as of right now, I can't say that I liked the new Candyman very much. All right. So I've put some negativity out into the world. I always, I remember like last couple of years, really, I've been like, there's too much negativity in the world. Let's, I just got to be positive all the time. And now I've changed it. It's good to be negative sometimes. So, but let's do some, let's get some positivity out back in the world with Malignant. Uh, this is on HBO Max now, I believe. I'm recording this a couple of weeks after I watched this, by the way. So I don't know. I think it's still on HBO Max for a couple more weeks and then it'll be on there again. It's also on theaters, I believe. Madison is paralyzed by shocking visions of grisly murders and her torment worsens as she discovers that these waking dreams are in fact terrifying realities. This is directed by James Wan with a story of Ingrid Bisu, a story from Ingrid Bisu and Akila Cooper. Ingrid Bisu is actually married to James Wan and she's also an actress who has popped up as the nun in the latest Conjuring. She's also in Blood Rain apparently and Cooper was a producer on Luke Cage. This stars Annabelle Wallace, who was in Annabelle, the movie Annabelle, but did not play Annabelle. The doll. Uh, this is Maddie Hassan and Marina Nazipa, who also plays uh, Gabriel. Gaze, plays Gabriel physically, I should say. Um, yeah. Anyway, I am going to try to... I'm. I, I stopped myself because I'm going to try very hard not to spoil this movie because I think this is, for those who maybe have avoided spoilers on this movie still, I don't want to be the one that spoils it. I think this movie is best if you know absolutely nothing about where it is, what it's about and where it goes. But uh, I do want to say this movie rocks. I talk about how much I love being surprised and along for a ride with a movie now, being very jaded when it comes to horror movies, especially. And this total, this movie totally took me for a ride. Um, it's best not to know anything. So while I rambled a bit during my Candyman review, I'm fine with it because I don't want to give too much away here on the, on the flagship, on the mothership, we just talked about Brotherhood of the Wolf. And we talked about a quote from Roger Ebert in his review of that movie where he called it an explosion at the genre factory, which he meant as a way to describe how it's a blend of historical epic action and horror. Well, this is that. It's also an explosion at the James Wan factory. James Wan, of course, is um, more recently known and maybe best known at this point for the Conjuring movies. But he also directed Saw, Dead Silence, Death Sentence, Insidious, Furious 7, and Aquaman. Um, he directed both Insidious movies. So I saw the marketing materials, and I thought this was going to be something similar to kind of the Conjuring movies, kind of a big spooka blast, if you will. Haunted House style movie. And it kind of starts out that way. Giallo is the hot horror buzz buzzword right now for comparison, and he's used it in multiple interviews to describe the aesthetic of the movie, so I should mention it as well mentioned that as well but i got more of a supernatural slasher feel from the early moments of the movie stuff like nightmare on elm street the poster is stylized in the stephen king font and i think there are some touches there but wes craven is the artist that ran through my head throughout the flick and in a good way i texted willie and told him this is james wan's shocker and i meant that as the highest compliment I can give a movie. But yeah, I was really taken aback by just how very the James Waniness of the movie is because there are conjuring, there are bits that you can tell he learned from directing conjuring insidious, but I was also very surprised to see 
Fast and Furious 7 Wan show up. And also the sleaziness and nastiness of Death Sentence. James Wan popped up later in the movie. If you haven't seen Death Sentence, because I know it's a little older now, uh, watch it. It's very much like a Death Wish style movie. Um, And if you have seen it, but it's been a while, watch it again. Now, while I do think this movie is mostly James Wan just kind of flexing as um, in the ways that I have mentioned. I've been thinking about it and whether or not this movie is about something. And Jason in our discord actually was thinking about the same thing. And I think that it is. I just, I don't think it overpowers the fun of it all. But if we're talking about kind of the Jalo influences, I do think there are, there's some meat to chew on with regard to gender roles in this movie. And there are some similar similarities to those flicks. Those movies deal and present female characters dealing with trauma and mental health. And I'm skirting on spoilers here, but how those things lead to their actions later in the film. So there is an interesting read on gender. Gender. I also think if you want, it could be seen as a critique of just how much we are at the mercy of our healthcare system. We really, we really are. And the people involved in that. I'm thinking specifically, weirdly enough, the Gore Verbinski movie from a couple years back, um, A Cure for Wellness, uh, as a comparison point for the idea of what I am talking about. But really, this is mostly just James Wan having a blast. Um, real quick, we need to talk about Gabriel. I Every morning now, I wake up hoping that they've announced like 10 sequels, and they can just be straight to HBO Max streaming sequels at this point, but like 10 sequels, like this is going to be a series of movies. I don't know how to judge box office performance anymore right now because we're in such a weird time and this was just kind of released on HBO Max. My dream sequel, though, is like a Dream Warrior style sequel to this movie where like each each warrior has its own uh parasitic twin (laughs) all right now i've just flat out spoiled what's going on but uh sorry um but like each warrior and each each warrior has like a parasitic twin with like its own um with its own special skill like maybe one of them's really good at like archery and maybe one of them is uh really good with uh well maybe like martial arts or maybe like a specific and maybe one's just really good with, uh, with like stealth mode and stuff. And like they, they track down Gabriel and they take him on. Um, I mean, you're not going to take him down though. Cause Gabriel, he just flat out wrecks shit in this movie. And I, I cackled at his first appearance and it's the moment I knew that I was in love with this movie. So there you go. Is this on the honor roll? Hell yes, it's on the honor roll. This is honestly, this might be my favorite movie of the year right now. I really want I wanted to watch it like again after watching it. So absolutely, Malignant is on the honor roll for me. All right, so those are the two big ones that I've been talking about. Let's move to some, some smaller stuff here. The first one, the next one up is Superhost. This is on Shudder now, uh, with their follower count dwindling, travel vloggers Teddy and Claire pivot to creating viral content around their most recent super host, Rebecca, who wants more from the duo than a great review. This is directed by Brandon Christensen, who directed a movie called Z from 2019 that I remember thinking was okay. It's about a kid who has a killer imaginary friend. I think it was one of those Shutter exclusives that I watched and went, well, it's included in the subscription. So there's a lot of those. And there's also some really good stuff on there. There's very rarely anything on there that I've, I've like been angry that I watched. So the star Sarah Canning, she was in the Vampire Diaries as Jenna. She was also in War for the Planet of the Apes. Osric Chow, who I remember as Kevin Tran from Supernatural. And of course, the great Barbara Crampton is in this. 
my wife watches a lot of vloggers and I watch them with her as well, specifically theme park vloggers. So there was one, this guy was, uh, he was going on a cruise and on this cruise, you have to, it was recently. So I bring this up and I'll get to my point later. So on this cruise, you have to either present proof of vaccina- vaccination or if you can't, you have to take a negative COVID test now. So like the first 10 minutes of his video are him taking a COVID test and claiming that you have to take it no matter what. And then in the comments, there were people saying like, hey, man, you didn't have to take that test if you are vaccinated. And then the commenter started to put it together. And you're like, hey, man, are you not vaccinated? Like you've been in theme parks and maskless for the last couple of months, talking constantly and screaming on rides and stuff. And I bring this up, not for any sort of vaccination debate, because it's it's early in the morning. I'm too tired for that. But it's just, I bring it up to say, like, he spent the next, like, week deleting negative comments about himself and not clarifying whether he was vaccinated or not. And it was just all, it was all very funny to me. Like, the amount of stress this guy took on uh, that week probably took years off his life. And it was just so he could protect some, just protect his online personality. It's all very darkly funny to me, but it also got me thinking about how we present ourselves online and how we really are. And I'm, I'm, I present myself a certain way online. I don't normally talk like this. I kind of do actually, (laughs) but it also, it also got me thinking about how, how different we are in different aspects and how it's kind of become worse in the digital age. And I bring that up because that's the strongest stuff in this movie is how the couple acts with each other online and how they do certain things to present themselves to their viewers and how they are in real life. Um, that's the strongest stuff in this movie. And it's kind of the, it's the funniest stuff as well. This is a movie that gets really silly towards the end. You really begin to question why these people are still hanging around where they are. It jumps through a lot of hoops in the third act. Barbara Crampton is more of a cameo in this. It's mostly focused on the main trio of the movie and your mileage may vary with how tolerable you find them. My mileage vary throughout because this is one of those movies where you do have to kind of put up with the main characters being kind of unlikable. Um, I do like that it taps into kind of the economic anxiety of the time. And like, this is, this is these people's job, this vlogging about um, uh, real estate, vlogging about, kind of like Airbnbs and stuff like they need to, they're losing viewers and they need to, they need to amp it up in some ways. And, and they do it like through marriage proposals and kind of exaggerating certain things about the house. Um, it's clever. The, this movie is more clever than good for me. Uh, it has a great line in it that says, I'm not a hero. I'm a vlogger. <laughs> So a character says that this movie is fantastic. Um, So anyway, is this on the honor roll? No, it's not great. If you want a great Barbara Crampton movie on Shudder, watch Jacob's Wife because that made the honor roll and that is fantastic. But Superhost, not so much. So it's fine. It's okay. All right, another sip of my pretzel flavored coffee. We got to get moving here. I like to keep these things a little bit quicker because it's just me talking. Uh, The next one here is Censor. This is, or at least was when I watched it, and in theaters rental. I think it was kind of cheap, though. I think it was only a couple bucks. This is from the usually reliable Magnet releasing. After viewing a strangely familiar video, Nasty Enid, a film censor, sets out to solve the past mystery of her sister's disappearance, embarking on a quest that dissolves the line between fiction and reality. This is directed by Prano Bailey Bond. This is her debut feature film. She had done some shorts in the past. Um, this stars Niam Alger. 
Michael Siley and Nicholas Burns. Niam Algar is in Raised by Wolves, the HBO show. And Michael Smiley has been in a couple of Ben Wheatley flicks. You, I recognized him from um, the main, mainly from the amazing kill list. So real quick, I want to give a short history, a brief history of the video nasties. The term video nasty actually started as a way to refer to a brand of horror fiction in the 70s and 80s. Books like Rats, Night of the Crabs, Slugs, kind of those animal attack style books. And they were all inspired by the kind of 50s and 60s science fiction movies. And they referred to they were referred to as nasties. Um, and this sort of censorship and stuff, talking about this kind of stuff, can be seen throughout time. I, the thing that pops into my head was the war against horror comics in the post-World War II era, kind of before television really took hold in the States. Um, It's all, a lot of this all stems from a way to protect children against what adults see as kind of dangerous ideas. Um, With regards to film, this all started to take hold. The video nasty started to take hold with the home video boom of the 1980s. And in the early days, major studios held back a lot of their libraries for a short time. So the big budget, more popular stuff wasn't readily available. If you walked into like a tape trading or a video store, stuff like I don't know, like Raiders of the Lock Start, you couldn't just go in and get it. So Britain has this thing called the British Board of Film Censors, the BBFC. They would basically decide which movies were and weren't allowed to be shown in British cinemas. Last House on the Left is a prime example of what we're talking about here. So Last House on the Left, the Wes Craven movie, was rejected by the BBFC, said you can't show it in theaters. But since those that censorship um, didn't extend to home video, that movie would be now available on home video. So when someone walked into a video store or a tape trading store they, and they were looking for Raiders of the Lost Ark, they didn't get it, but that last house on the left was there. So it was available to them. So this also led to the home video boom kind of also led to a lot of uncensored versions of films being released. Stuff that originally had to be shown in cinema in edited versions could now kind of be seen by people who liked horror movies in all its unedited glory and the way it was meant to be seen, honestly. The public became aware of the availability of these videos kind of in 1982. And these people are all cops, by the way. Uh, but the funniest part of this whole thing to me, at least, was uh, that it was brought to light by the distributors of Cannibal Holocaust. The distributors wrote anonymously to Mary Whitehouse, who was a conservative activist and the head of the National Viewers and Listeners Association, which campaigned against media content that was harmful, that was deemed harmful and offensive. Um, they they wrote to her as a way to drum up publicity for their movie. But what it did was kickstart a campaign against kind of the wild west of tape trading and early video stores and the availability of these quote unquote video nasties. So these movies were kind of, this was a list of movies. These were, they were, they were blamed for corrupting the use of Britain and the BBFC was renamed the British board of film classification and the films released on video before 1985 had to be resubmitted for classification by this board. So there you go. This movie, I went through all that because this movie kind of uses it as a jumping off point for the story. It's about to tell this movie also has a lot on its mind. It's about censorship. It's cultural repression, the protection of institutions against dangerous ideas, why we tell stories and how we use them to cope with traumatic experiences. The main character has a traumatic experience in this and 
It's kind of about how we use storytelling to cope with those. It also deals with horror history, like I like I mentioned with the video nasty stuff. And as a horror history guy, I, I kind of love this movie. Um, it is a slow burn. I do think that it delivers in the third act, which a slow burn horror movie has to do for me. The ending gets very wacky, maybe too wacky for some. This also, of course, has a giallo influences like everything seems to these days, but it worked for me. It's a very cool looking movie. Um, it also taps into a feeling that people have of wanting to make a difference. The main character in this want, I believe she has good intentions. She wants to make a difference. There is part of me that thinks censorship and while I'm anti-censorship big time, it, it comes from a good place. The road to hell is paved with good intention as all and all that, but it, it does. It shows how, where that can lead. Um, it also has something to say, like I said, about the breakdown of institutions and how the censor is a protector of those things. So as I'm moving through quickly on this, is this on my honorable honor roll? Yeah, I'm going to put this on there. It's a very crowded field right now, but I will. I think this has a chance to make my top 10 at the end, end of the year. I don't know if it will, but it's going to be hanging around there. I really like this. And like I said, it it delivers in the end. So that's what it had to do. And a lot of the horror history stuff is is fun to chew on. All right, finally, and we'll do this one quickly. We have Night Books. Working on the Night Books follows Alex, a boy obsessed with scary stories who was imprisoned by an evil young witch in her contemporary New York City apartment. She's going to be paying good rent on that. Directed by David Yarabaski, who directed Brightburn, which I like quite a bit. This is produced by Sam Raimi's production company, Ghost House. This is based on a book by J.A. White that I have not read. This stars Winslow Fegley, Lydia Jewett, and Kristen Ritter. This is on Netflix now. I get stopped every day. They go, hey, Tim, I see you. I listen to your podcast all the time. I, I can't walk down the street while that was happening. People come up to me and they say, hey, can my, ki- can my kids watch this? Can my kids watch uh, Old Boy? And I say, hey, man, I don't have kids. You make up your own mind. You're the parent here. That's why I don't have kids. I don't have to make these decisions. Can I? Can when can I introduce my kids to horror movies? I don't know. Introduce them right away. Never introduce them. They'll find out on their own. They'll decide if they like it or not, or just do it. I don't know. I can't. I can't parent your kids. Lay off. But uh, this is a this is a nightbook. So it's a, this is a kid friendly horror movie. I think. I don't know. Uh, it's cute enough. It's very Hansel and Gretelly. The production and the sets are very neat. I don't know. We're running long here. It's, it's fine. This is a good movie. I don't think this is aimed at me, but there is some nice stuff in here for kids about being true to yourself. I assume that's good for them. That's what most like kids books are about. I don't know. There's some good Lost Boy shout outs in this. I know that. Um, is this is Night Books on the honor roll? No. If I were 10 years old, maybe. I don't know. This is this also, hey, this is too long for kids. This is an hour and 50 minutes. It's too long for me. Maybe kids have better attention spans than me. Actually, I would guarantee that most children have way better attention spans than I do. So there you go. To sum it up, I was unfortunately disappointed in Candyman. I loved Malignant. I think it's the best movie of all time, obviously. Uh, next to the Clint Eastwood's The Mule. Uh, Superhost was a movie I watched. Censor. Censor was good. I liked Censor. Uh, I put that on the honor roll. So two movies on the honor roll from this. And Nightbooks is good if you have kids. Maybe. I don't know. You decide. You you do the research. I'm not going to do the research for you. Stop coming at me with this stuff. What am I going to do next time? I don't know. Um, I'll watch some movies. And then I'll talk about them. We just did a, an episode on 
Brotherhood of the Wolf that I think came out quite good. We have a Tiny Terror where we preview Motor City Comic Con coming up. Uh, the If you want to get this episode and our Tiny Terrors a few days early, check out our Patreon, patreon.com backslash Midwest Podnet, or just search Patreon Midwest Podnet. You get access to our Tiny Terrors early. You get access to the Game Nerds. Or if you just want to chip in some bucks because you like what we do here, that would be greatly appreciated. And we just appreciate you listening as well. But that's it for the honor roll for now. I will see you next time. Take care, everybody, and thank you very much for listening.